Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Plastic Model Mojo time again, and it's time for episode 56. Wow. Yep. I'm telling you, man, uh, I, when we were, when I was saving the outline and I looked back, I could not believe this was the 56 one we've done. It's amazing. I just did 50, seemed like. I know. I know. Well, how you been? I think I know, but our listeners don't. My model's fear was... Coming out of the dark age or the dark time, and and actually, I got a lot of juice in my veins. I was very gung ho. I'm making progress on several project projects. I'm inspired for 2022. I've got a lot of goals, a lot of things I want to do, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But uh, then COVID hit the household. You'll hear me talk about it a little later when uh, we do our interview with Dr. Miller. But uh, yeah, uh, COVID hit our household. Luckily, we're all vaccinated. We're all healthy, no comorbidities. And for all of us, it was nothing more than a very, very mild cold. But the one thing that, that did make you was a little bit tired. So my modeling's been kind of reduced for the last last week or so. But we're all on the upside and didn't have any huge long-term effect. I did manage to get a little model-related reading done. So all in all, as lucky as, as we can be. How about you? Well, the tests say I didn't have COVID, but I was sick for about a week. Uh, my son brought something home from school and all negative tests, multiple tests, but I don't know, man. I don't, I don't test say no, but my, my intuition says maybe cause they, they weren't, they weren't, uh, well, they were, they were home tests. So. Right. They weren't the PCRs, which by yeah. the way, I got one of those, man, where they tickle the back of your brain. Yeah. Oh my Lord. Oh, that was, that was no fun. Well, you're starting to sound like Dave again. You're yeah. Yeah, I, I I did the one advantage of of getting the congestion that's related to COVID is it gives me a little bit more of a radio voice. So uh, enjoy it, everybody, while you're while you have the opportunity. <laughs> well, we aren't we aren't the only modeling podcast to get hit with this. So yeah, true enough. True enough. Well, I guess my model sphere is trying to keep my uh, inspiration up, and I don't know. I tell you this getting sick and and we've had some weather that's put school out yeah in our part of kentucky and i don't know we're trying to just come out of the holiday break and we're just stumbling all over ourselves to have a normal week and uh i don't know man it's just kind of rippled all through everything but well we pick ourselves up we dust ourselves off and you know recommit we find the mojo we 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 persevere you've been doing some great stuff i mean i've i've uh, some of the stuff you've posted to our Facebook page, uh, uh, I've I've really been enjoying. Well, keep watching the Facebook page because there'll be more. I assume that. Oh, by the way, 
this is modeling fluid related. Now, I'm going to ask Mike in a second what his modeling fluid is. But let me tell you one secret in case you all out there don't know. Bourbon cures everything. And I'm not kidding. When I started to get symptoms on like Friday afternoon, Friday evening, I had a couple of stiff bourbons and I woke up feeling better Saturday and have continued that bourbon regimen every evening and I'm getting better and better. Now that may just be the natural course of the disease, but it also may be the bourbon and I'm not taking any chances. So Mike, what's your modeling fluid tonight? Well, it's not bourbon. Oh, you're killing me, man. No wonder you're feeling so bad for so long. Well, no, I had some while I was sick. I I used your same, uh, remedy there, but, uh, no, I'm on the cheap beer tonight, man. It's Narragansett lager. Oh, okay. In a, well, pint, in a pint can, so it may get me through the episode. Well, that's that's not a bad. Now, that's more usually something I'd associate with spring or summer out doing yard work, but uh, it's not a bad beer. You'll have to, well, you'll have to tell us if it gets you through the episode. I'm sure it will, but we'll talk about that at the end. What uh, is your medicine of choice tonight? My medicine of choice tonight is Evan Williams 100 proof bottled in bond bourbon. Now, this is not a top shelf bourbon. Reason is with COVID, recovering from COVID. Now, I never lost taste and smell completely, but because of the congestion and all, you do lose some sense of taste, some sense of set of smell. So while I was initially treating my COVID with the very fine bullet bourbon that I had left here at the house, uh, when that was gone and I needed to replace it, I saw no point in going out and spending good money on mid-shelf or top-shelf bourbon, especially since I knew I was going to mix it with ginger ale. So I got myself some Evan Williams 100-proof bottled in bond, and it's mixed with Seagram's ginger ale, and it's going to get me through the episode just fine. <laughs> well, that's good to hear, Dave. I hope you yep. feel better, man. I, I'm on the upside, and it was never that bad. Honest to God, I, uh, I've i had hay fevers that were worse than this. Well, you're not the only thing on the up and up or on the mend. Uh, the mailbag uh, rebounded quite well this past couple of weeks as well had no doubt it would oh yeah well it's kind of becoming our jam i guess well let's get into listener mail because there's some good stuff in here yep i've got my glasses this week all right he knew where they were first up tonight is john paisano from uh bloomfield hills michigan and he's written in before but he actually comes to us this time with a discussion, a discussion point, and uh, he says a lot, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one bit. Um, John likes to leave the smaller parts on the sprue and paint them, you know, unless uh, the subassembly can be done before painting all the parts of the same color, etc. He's experiencing what kind of always happens. I, I think when you try to do it that way, as you kind of, kind of, no pun intended, you paint yourself into a corner. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, 
got all these small parts and you need to get the paint off the parts, the areas of the little parts that uh, need to be bonded together. Right. And uh, they can't be completely clean to paint or they're so tiny that it's got concerns of ruining the parts by sanding them and you know while you're trying to clean them up they get away from you and get lost etc yep this is a challenge man uh i don't do it that way no matter how small i always take the part off the sprue before painting it for that very reason but i know plenty of modelers who do it the way he describes it I, you know, this is one of those things where I think it's just, you know, there are pluses and minuses with doing it either way. And you do what you like best. I've never done it this way because the cleanup on small parts is hard enough. Yes. Without uh, having to worry about paint. Right. And if you got to touch it up anyway. Um, I don't know, John, I think I would... Uh, Practice a little more maybe on getting these sub-assemblies together that aren't the same color and uh, practice your detail painting. Well, and and let me tell you, I do think that brush detail painting is an underappreciated art. Sometimes I think we airbrush smaller parts because we think we have to, because we think that airbrushing is better than brush painting in all circumstances. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I'll tell you over on 72nd Scale Forum, there are guys who brush paint entire models. And they produce stuff that you could not ever tell was a brush painted model. They have developed the the skill of the hairy stick better than, than, you know, I would think possible. But I do think there's that at least some of us modelers get into the habit of thinking everything has to be airbrushed. And I don't think that's true, especially with, um, with the newer generation of paints. Uh, you know, we all know that Tamiya doesn't brush paint very well, but with the Vallejos, with the new AK Gen 3s, stuff like that, I think you can do a lot of brush painting on detail parts and have it come out every bit as good, if not better, than if you had airbrushed it. And when you do it a lot, you can kind of learn some tips. Like, um, I'm not sure what he's building here. It says 72nd scale aircraft and then some automobiles. Thinking that you need to to harken back to kindergarten, thinking that you got to color between the lines all the time. Yeah. Quite often, like, I don't know. He's building small aircraft. So, for example, uh, you've got a control column that the metal tube shaft on it is probably going to be chromate yellow or green or whatever, right? Right. And the and the uh, the grip's going to be dark gray or black or something like right. that. Paint the top of the thing dark gray without any concern over how far down the the shaft it goes, and just come back and cut it in later. Right. And you don't get too wrapped around about wrapped around the axle about, you know, thinking that you got to be so precise all the time. Now, sometimes you do. Right. But a lot of times you don't. And when you learn when you don't, you can really simplify things and take a lot of pressure off yourself, I think. But uh, I still, I think you said you don't do this either, and I don't do it as well. I don't do it. I tend to build things up as much as I can before I paint them. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the great tips I got out of the 
Diego Quinano series on modeling aircraft models was one of his tips was when like in cockpits or wheel wells, you have lines running, you know, fuel lines or control lines or whatever running through the, the space. He paints them all black first and then goes back with the color that they're intended to be on top of that. And it leaves at the edge, if you do it right, and if you've got a steadier hand than I do, it leaves a black shadow at the edge. And it really makes the makes it pop to stand out. And that's a place where, or that's a thing where br- you can do that brush painting. You can never do that airbrushing. So, you know, I, I, I do think that sometimes we think that everything has to be airbrushed and it doesn't. Moving on, Jeff Kellerman, and Jeff does not give me a geography, and uh, he's asking, is there a difference between KV and JS tracks, and what might it be? Okay, Mike is going to give you a five-minute disquisition while I sip on bourbon. Go ahead, Mike. Actually, I'm not, because maybe I should know this, but it, um, specifically, I do not know this. Now, I strongly suspect that, yes, they are different, just because... I, I really don't know the answer. I, I, I'm just going to say, yes, they're different. And how how are they different? I'm not real sure. You're going to have to look at uh, the nuances, the different tread patterns, make sure the widths are the same. Uh, now, the the KV tracks started really wide, like 700 millimeters, and they got narrower as the war progressed. And then when the later series, KV-1S, when they tried to lighten the entire tank, uh, they went to a different track that only had a guide tooth on every other plate and then and the plate that without the guide tooth is actually two pieces that butted together so um you actually had three track links instead of two if that gotcha. makes sense yep uh the two formed one and the other one was the one with the tooth on it uh the js track is like that but i'm not sure if it's the same smaller width that the uh the later kv tracks were well, that's an opportun- opportunity for one of our listeners out there. I guarantee you one of the folks listening knows the absolute answer to this, and I'm sure they're going to write in and tell us. And clearly I don't know everything. Well, you're not expected to know everything. <laughs> you know you know more about Russian helmets than any human being on the planet should know. Maybe. Maybe not. No maybe about it. Up next, Stephen Schaefer from uh, Hastings, Minnesota. But it's cold up there tonight. Oh, God. It's going to be it's going to be nine degrees here tonight or uh, eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Fun stuff, man. Hey, I'm living the south. I I didn't sign up for this stuff. Cold weather aside, um, Stephen is more of a sci-fi and 48 scale, which he says the actual true scale aircraft builder. Oh, Stephen. I'll forgive. I'll forgive you. Uh, his local clubs, one of them, the Minnesota Military Figure Society, is doing a group build on armored cars. Great and, choice. Uh, and he's decided to uh, stretch the definition a bit, and he's building Ryfield's models M twelve forty A one. It's an M A T V. So I guess it's an armored. That's uh, an armored car, I'd say, but it it it's one of those up armored. You know, used to be soft skin until we got into guerrilla warfare kind of yeah. things. I, th- I think that's what it is. Yeah. 
he sent a lot of body off uh, photographs, and that's man, there's a lot to this kit. Uh, his point being, though, it's definitely outside his comfort zone. It's been very a very enjoyable build. And and you know, a I love armored cars. I'm a big fan, especially all this World War One stuff that's been going on. But I'm now even warming up to some of the World War Two stuff that's that's coming out. And uh, you know, building outside your comfort zone is. It's the way to go, man. I'll tell you what, especially if don't get, don't get AMS, don't get advanced modeler syndrome. If you're building outside of your comfort zone, take the model as it comes in the box, build it for the enjoyment of building it as it comes out of the box. It doesn't have to be perfected. It doesn't, this isn't. This isn't your major area of building, so in you're doing it to enjoy it. You're doing it to to find the enjoyment from that. So don't let it devolve into a super detail project. Just build it, enjoy it, and I guarantee you building something outside your comfort zone will bring you a lot of mojo. Well, this next one's interesting, Dave. All right. I'm up for interesting. It comes to us from Rick Cooper from Fresno, California. And uh, it's it, it's a, a kind of a different take on this whole conversation we had last time. Uh, I think, uh, oh, who were you talking to on Facebook Messenger? John Bryan. Yeah. About the 30-minute right. work, work limitation, the wall yep. of 30 minutes. Well, what Rick's done over the years is uh, he's kept a lot of small generic kind of things close at hand, like uh, ammo crates and water cans and oil cans. I was going to mention this. This is a fantastic idea. Did I copy you on this? No, you didn't. Well, you may have. You know what my, my email looks like, some sort of sewer. So, Well, you know, he keeps all these smalls close at hand and some CA or, you know, cement of some kind and, and his primer. And, uh, he, he's built up all this stuff and he'll prime it. And then the next time he's got his airbrush fired up, um, with any appropriate color, he'll paint some of it. Yeah. And then he'll, he'll use this stuff to practice, uh, his, uh, his weathering on. Well, and this, this is a fantastic idea for aircraft modelers, Particularly, uh, well, it, it applies to World War II, but particularly more modern, more modern aircraft ordnance on more modern aircraft. You have all these different types of missiles, all these different types of bombs, rocket pods, etc. And what is a great idea, and I've done it in the past, and and frankly, I've kind of gotten away from it, and. Uh, I need to get back to it because, again, this is a great idea. If you're sitting down at the bench and you've got 30 minutes, build some ordnance. And what you do is you build that ordnance, you prime it, you do what you can in 30 minutes. Every time you build up some ordnance, you then, when you get completed ordnance, you put decals on it, whatever. You put it away, marked as what it is, and then when you're using building a project that uses that ordinance, 
you've already got it ready-made because what happens, you go walk along a lot of uh, convention tables and you'll see a lot of modern aircraft without a lot of ordnance under them because what happens is by the time the modeler gets to the ordnance, which is at the end of the build, after they've got the model basically, quote unquote, done, they're tired of it. Yeah, they're and done. Too. They're, t- they're done. <laughs> and they're, so you'll see a lot of jets with a lot of stuff not hanging off them, empty pylons or whatever. It is a great idea if you've got those 30 minute bursts and you can't do anything else to build ordnance to paint it, decal it, put it away, and over time build up a stock of that stuff that you have ready access to so that when you're working on the model that calls for that ordinance and you're at the end of the build and you're done, you're just, you want it off the table, you want to move on, but you really don't want to just leave it naked you don't have to put a lot of extra time because all you have to do is reach up, grab them, grab the ordinance that you've already pre-done, hang it, and move on. And this is a fantastic idea, and I should have mentioned it earlier. That's exactly what he does, but he comes at it from from the armor-centric side of modeling. His 35th scale armor is his, his jam. And, uh, you know, he finishes these up, pops them off his little prop he's used to paint them on, and puts them in a box. Yep. Jerry cans, uh, you know, all the uh, stuff that hangs on the back of tanks, uh, uh, backpacks, duffel bags, any of that sort of stuff. Same, same idea, exactly. So now he can, he can personalize a project without it slowing him down. Yep. This is a fantastic idea, and I feel, I feel bad for not having mentioned that in my conversation with uh, uh, John Bryant, because that is a really great way to deal with the 30-minute modeling session. And Rick closes saying that now I'm retired and has really come in handy as, as I'm able to use all those crates, cans, boxes, et cetera, that I've built up during my working years when time was at a premium. Yep. See, you in, see you in Omaha. All right. I'm looking forward. All right. This one's... Interesting too. Scott Stakowiak from uh, Saginaw, Michigan, from the IPMS Mid Michigan Model Makers. Way up there. Way up there. Well, midway up there. Midway up there. Midway up there. He's not in the UP, but he's up there. Kind of uh, keying off our conversation about that Airfix Lee and Grant I bought and, and, you know, why you couldn't get one versus the other. And right. kind of segued into you always hear that some old kit, some venerable old kit is still holding its own or whatever. Um, maybe it's the shapes better or something like that than anything than the current offerings. He asks, while newer kits benefit from modern engineering, are there any vintage kits that still hold their own due to shape, fit, or availability? I'm sure there are, and I'm sure our listeners can tell us one. But in general, in this day and age, I really am of the opinion that you know, CAD and, and all of the stuff, the, the new techniques with mold cutting, the new techniques with the different types of slide molds, etc. One of the reasons I'm convinced that people getting into the hobby today have it so much better than, than we did when we got into the hobby is 
in general, kits fit better than they ever have. And I'm sure there's an exception to every rule, but in general, I think that when you're faced with the choice of kits on the same subject, the rule is buy the most the the most recent molding, the most current uh, release of an item, because I think that the odds are great that it's going to be the better kit and the better fitting kit and the better assembling kit. Well, I know of one shape wise that was completely true for a while. Now it's still half true. Okay. Hit me. A short wing B26 Marauder in 72nd scale. Oh, well, God, we need, we need a, we need a brand new one. (laughs) Elaborate for our listeners. Okay. Monogram. The, the early B26 used it midway. The short wing early B26. The Widowmaker. The Widowmaker. Right. Before they figured out, you know, let's give these, if we're going to hang this powerful an engine on these things, let's give them a little more wing and some other stuff too. Kit's really only been represented twice. One, the old monogram snap tight kit in 72nd scale. And then Volome released a short-run injection version of the thing. While the short-run, Volome short-run injection version of the thing was released, what, I'm going to bet 30 years after the monogram snap tight, it is not, it's, it's somewhat of an improvement, but not uh, a great improvement. And actually, the best way to deal with that, if you're trying to do this, and if you are, God bless you. I know Chris Buckholtz at Obscureco is actually doing one of these things as a long-term project. The best thing to do is to start with the monogram snap-tight kit and then use bits and pieces of the Volome kit to try and make it better. And if you're doing this, I bless you. Because as soon as you get 90 to 92% done with this project, Tamiya will announce a 72nd scale short wing B26. And we're all, all the rest of us are going to owe you a great debt of gratitude. And that is the way it works, man. It is true. There is some modeler out there who's pouring his heart and soul into making some dog of a kit acceptable. And the moment he gets close, that's when somebody announces a brand new injection kit. It's called throwing yourself on a model. That's right. Well, we digress a little there. I don't know any other examples, really. I can't think of any, but I'm sure there are some, and I'm sure that there's somebody out there who's going to email us and say, oh, by the way, the X kit from the 1970s is a better version of X than anything that's been produced since. Danny Saint Laurent from uh, Quebec City in Canada. Just a quick note with a funny picture. We'll maybe put that on the Facebook page if he thinks that's okay. I guess we made his day because it looks like maybe he got his... uh, prize stencil sample pack and the stuff you sent him for being a contributor the same day. Oh, okay. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. 
All right. We made his day. That's our goal, man. That's right. We make ours, Danny. If we can make people happy, you know, again, if we can, if we can get people's mojo flowing and make them happy, you know what? I'm going to consider that a life well lived. <laughs> Dwayne Bagley, no geography, but a 517 area code. So I'm thinking he's in Michigan too. Yeah. 517 has got to be Michigan. Ah, this one's for you, Dave. And I'm Uh-oh. all ears because I want to know as well. Uh, wondering if you could recommend an, an assembly jig for 172nd scale aircraft. I'm getting back into the hobby, and I was wondering if you knew of one that stands out. Yes, absolutely. And I can tell you, it is by a company called Vertigo, V-E- or the product is called Vertigo. I don't know if the company's called Vertigo. V-E-R-T-I-G-O. I know that uh, US, UMM USA carries these. I don't know. I ordered mine actually directly from the manufacturer because I've owned a number of assembly jigs and all have had their flaws, all have had their pluses and minuses. And I've always thought, you know, what we need is one made out of acrylic, you know, fairly thick acrylic. And I happened to be on the internet one day and here was a guy displaying his model halfway finished. and. It was on an acrylic assembly jig. And I was like, holy heck, what is that? And I zoomed in on the picture and I could see the name on the, which luckily they had laser engraved on the, on the acrylic. And so with a little bit of Googling, I found it and ordered it direct. It was somewhere out of uh, uh, Eastern Europe and it is by far the best assembly jig that is out there because it's acrylic because it is substantial uh it's solid a lot of assembly jigs the ones that are made from laser cut balsa or laser cut wood uh they don't quite hold up although i will tell you i have one again that i got from usa uh umm usa uh, mr voitech that I still use for painting because I don't want to paint my ver- on, on my vertigo and then uh, have to have to try and clean the paint off. Uh, I like the acrylic clear and it's got measurements and everything on it, and I don't want to obscure those. But I highly recommend the uh, vertigo acrylic aircraft assembly jigs. They make it for both single wing aircraft. They also make a version for biplanes. I actually own both. I have yet to use the one for biplanes because I am a complete and utter coward. And I will overcome that at some point before I die. (laughs) Well, I hope so. All right. Well, you know, we need to find the link, a link to that, a source for that and get that up. I'll find that. I really will. All right. We got another one. Okay. Arthur Vicente Guaranazo from uh, São José dos Pinhas in Brazil. Okay. How's my Portuguese? I have no clue. Well, I'm just thrilled that someone from Brazil listens to our show because I know English is not uh, Arthur's first language. Well, well, that's kind of funny because I just sent a set of decals to Brazil. Okay. Uh, off of the 72nd scale aircraft forum. 
And by the way, I found a link. I will uh, shoot it to you. Okay. Art, we will get back with you. He'll send us a f- fairly lengthy email with a lot of points. I'll forward just this to you, Dave, because it just came today, uh, this afternoon. So uh, he's want to talk a little bit about podcasting. He's maybe wants to do that or the YouTube channel or both. And uh, yeah. I don't know if he means in his native language or, or what. That'd be, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. I bet there, I'm sure there's not one. I, I don't know. That's a great question if there is. And, and Portuguese is a language that's more widespread than people realize. Well, Art, thank you for listening all the way down in Brazil. That's a long way from Lexington, Kentucky, and Louisville, too, for that matter. Yep. And uh, happy modeling, man. Thanks for the, thanks for the listener mail, and uh, I will get back to you on your podcasting points. Mike has provided many of the current podcasters out there with uh, – uh, hints and tips and tricks. So uh, he's more than more than willing to share. Well, my last one tonight came via text message from our guest last episode, uh, Brandon Jacob. And uh, apparently Winter Blitz was a, a nice success. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Winter Blitz, to say Winter Blitz was a success is an understatement. We had 45 contestants and over 250 models to judge. Now, remember, this show was armor-centric with a few figures. Right. Uh, so that ain't bad. No, that uh, for the first time it's held by a guy who just drove by a, uh, a museum and went, Hey, that this is an idea. Let's do it. I mean, that's kind of like, uh, uh, Judy Garland and uh, Mickey Rooney going, Hey, let's, let's hold a dance in the barn or whatever. Uh, it says there were many positive comments. It was all very exciting. And he had three, Three people approach him and say they were there because they heard him talking about it on our podcast on Plastic Model Mojo. That's awesome. He says that was unbelievably cool, and he just wanted us to know that people are listening. Well, Brandon, glad it was a success. And he also sent me a a YouTube show report from uh, an attendee, which I've posted to our Facebook page, and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Uh, you can kind of get a feel for what was going on. He sent me a lot of photos, which I'm going to post on the Facebook page as well. Uh, as soon as possible. But uh, uh, that, that's all the listener mail that came via email and uh, my text messaging service. Listen, that is fantastic. The more model contests, the better. And and folks who model but don't go to contests, let, let me urge you, even if you're not going to enter in a contest, go because it is a great place. You're gathered with tens or hundreds of other people who love the exact same things you do. And I guarantee you, you will show up and you will not meet strangers. You will meet friends who are just the same people that you are. And I look forward to all the model contests I go to. Uh, because I know I'm going to see people who I interact with, but the only time I get to see them is at model contests. If you're just modeling, even if you're just modeling and going to the local club, but you're not going to a contest, you're missing a part of the modeling experience. You really are, you're, and I'm not, don't, you don't have to enter. You don't, you know, I know a lot of folks aren't into competition. I know a lot of people think, oh, well, my model's not good enough, which generally is, is, is not true. But regardless of whether you want to enter with whether you want to compete or anything like that, forget all of that. 
go to a contest and talk to other modelers. You'll have the time of your life. You got any others, Dave, from uh, Facebook or anything? Well, no, I've got one, but I'm going to mention it down here a little bit later. Right now, I want to uh, uh, remind everybody that they're listening to Plastic Model Mojo. And if you're listening and you like what you're hearing, please go on whatever podcasting app that you you listen to us on and rate us. We'd like five stars. It helps with driving the visibility of the podcast. Also, more importantly, if you're a modeler and you have friends who are modelers, guys that you you talk with all the time, the guys that you share your modeling with who aren't listening, please share the podcast with them. The, the way we get new modelers or new listeners is word of mouth, is people telling their friends, hey, this is good, listen to this. So you might have to help them. You might have to show them how to download a podcasting app. Please help your friends do that. Help them become listeners. And also subscribe to the podcast if you have not, because that also helps uh, drive the visibility of the podcast. Well, and please check out our other friends out there on the web and on the uh, podcast airwaves, if you will. There's a lot of podcasts out there. You can fill up your modeling weeks with a lot of good content. And if you want to find it all in one click, go to modelpodcast.com. Uh, it's a consortium website we've set up to uh, provide links to all the web, all the uh, podcasts who are willing to participate in that for our all our mutual benefit. In addition to the podcast, we've got a lot of blog and YouTube friends out there. We've got Mr. Stephen Lee with Sprue Pie with Frets and his blog. Chris Wallace, the model airplane maker with his blog and YouTube channel. Jeff Groves, the Inchai guy, his all things 72nd scale blog. And Jim Bates, a scale Canadian TV and his wonderful little show, scale Canadian TV on YouTube. Please check out all those guys. They've got some good stuff, some good content, some funny content, some in inspiring content, uh, just a lot of great stuff to keep you, uh, keep you motivated. Finally, I would like everybody, if you're not a member of IPMS USA or IPMS Canada or the national chapter of whatever IPMS organization in the country that you're in, please consider becoming a member of the national organization. It really helps uh, IPMS worldwide does a lot for modeling. There's a lot of interactions between the national organizations. Uh, the organizations do a lot in modeling as far as relation to manufacturers in order to uh, help people form local modeling clubs. I want to give a special thank you to Greg Williams, who Facebook messengered me today, telling me that due to his listening to our episodes, uh, and he went back and started at the beginning. He's on episode 22, so he's got a lot to catch up on. Uh, he joined IPMS USA. He lives in basically a little west of Dayton, Ohio, which I consider very lucky for him because he's close to the U.S. Air Force Museum, which is one of the great the great aircraft museums on the planet. But he, he uh, Facebook messengered me to tell me that he had joined IPMS USA, and I really appreciate that. If you're listening and you haven't joined, 
please join. We're an organization that's getting stronger and better. And the more people we have, the stronger and better we'll get. So thank you all. All right, Dave. Let's take a minute here from a word from our sponsor and our guest, Model Paint Solutions. All right. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, we're back, Dave, and it is Wagon's Hoe for Omaha. I cannot tell you how excited I am for Omaha. Having attended the last two conventions there... I know what a great job these guys do. I am super pumped to get to Omaha. Well, at the time of this recording, Dave, it is 175 days away. Wow. Time is flying. I know. It's clipping off quick. Yes, it is. And I talked to Scott Hackney via email this week, and uh, you remind us that registration opens February 1st, and they are working hard to have everything ready to go so folks can register for the convention and sign up for tours and buy a t-shirt, etc. Uh, not everything may be available on February 1st. Some of the workshops are still being put together by the sponsors, that kind of thing. So, sure. you know, sure. it's going to kick off first and you need to get everything you can get on the first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because stuff goes and some of these things, you know, once it's sold out, it's sold out. So go get it when it becomes available. Uh, the two attached hotels remain full. That's no surprise. Yep. Uh, he says there's a hotel across the street with a great rate. Comfort Suites also has a rate of $154 plus tax, but he's saying that was not a real convenient walk. But uh, if, if you're driving, it's it, it'd be a great choice if you don't have a room yet. So uh, Scott's given us a link, and uh, I'll put that in the show notes and uh, possibly put that on the, on the Facebook page as well. Yeah. They've sent out the call for seminars uh, just this week from a mailing list he's got, and he's received a lot of replies. So if anybody in the audience is interested in putting on a seminar, uh, just have him, he's just, uh, he wants you to reach out to the, uh, the show folks there at Omaha and, uh, they'll get you set up. Now I know thanks to the, uh, the posse crew and, and John Bonani, we're going to be doing the podcast meet and greet again and possibly something else as well. And I know some of those guys are, are, are have got, uh, got some seminars they're going to do as well. Yep. Uh, listen, some, I've, I said this when I was talking about Vegas, uh, Seminars are the underappreciated gold nugget of IPMS USA national conventions. I mean, you can watch a YouTube video all you want. You can read articles all you want. This is your opportunity to go and watch in person, go listen in person, go ask questions. It's interactive. Some of my best memories of 2015, Five plus national conventions are the seminars. Little tip for you if you see Dana Bell giving a seminar on anything, go and attend that seminar. I guarantee you it will be something that you will remember the rest of your life. And there are a lot of other guys too. I know Dr. Miller usually puts on a seminar. And if he is, go to that because John is a magician with an airbrush and it is really worth seeing and worth hearing him talk in person and worth interacting with him one-on-one on on that subject. 
that's our update for the show. Keep that February 1st date in mind and uh, get yourself signed up when that rolls around because that's uh, that's going to be just a couple days after this episode drops. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. I didn't realize that until I just stopped to th- think about it for a second. <laughs> yep. Time flies, man. How the hell did we get this old? I don't know, man. But we are. I know. I know the days are long. The the years are quick. It's unbelievable. Well, we've alluded to it already, but our our, our special segment tonight is uh, Doctor John Miller, Doctor Strangebrush, and uh, the Doctor Strangebrush files. And we're gonna get right into that and see what he's got to say out on a few topics. Well, Dave, it is a new year, and we are going to kick off a new adventure with uh, Dr. Strangebrush. John, welcome back. How you doing? Thank you much. Appreciate it. Doing well. How about yourself? Uh, I'm great. Dave, not so much. Well, I, I feel fine. Uh, un- unfortunately, uh, 72nd scale Nirvana was hit uh, COVID, uh, starting with my wife and then my oldest daughter and finally myself. Luckily for all three of us, it, we're, we're vaccinated, fully vaccinated. So, for each of us, it turned out to be nothing more than a cold. So, uh, I mean, I've had hay fevers worse worse than this. So at least for our household, it's worked out really well. Although it has, for the last f- four or five days, cut into my modeling time a little. Oh, that's serious. Yeah, that I know. Is, I know. I know. Well, we hope you feel better, but... Uh... Well, after this, after this, I'm invincible, man. Well, you don't have to carry the water this episode, so <laughs> we'll, we'll give you a break. I'll carry the bourbon. That's fine. Well, well, John, let's get right into this. We've got a few topics here. Um, one of them, or well, one of them's a, a, a question you say uh, you'd like to offer some clarity on, so maybe it doesn't come around so often. Let's just jump right into that one, and it is air bubbles in your paint cup. Yep. Well, not my paint cup, but anybody's paint cup. <laughs> Actually, it's funny that that uh, uh, John, before we started, was talking about how often he gets this inquiry and this problem, and it's funny because I'm actually one of the people's the people that made the inquiry because I had this particular issue. You you were the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back, probably so. And man, his advice. He was absolutely 100% right, cured it. So, John, enlighten us all. So, I get this at least twice a week. Wow. I I get it so often that I've actually made one of those form letter email, you know, templates (laughs) that has all the, you know, specifics already typed out so that it's, it's easy. It saves so much time as opposed to doing it de novo every time. And what it is is bubbles in the paint cup. And um, it is not necessarily a harder Steenbeck issue. Um, most airbrushes, most double action airbrushes are all set up pretty much the same with regards to how the air galleys work inside the brush. And when you get bubbles in the paint cup, the cause for that is about the same in a harder Steenbeck as well as an Awada or a Badger or a Pache or a Master. Uh, a master class brush. Uh, and so because, again, because all these brushes share similar air, uh, similar air galley design, they, they have the same idiosyncrasy. So when you get bubbles in the paint cup, 
what 99% of the time, what that is, is actually a leak at either the air cap or the air cap seals to the, to the airbrush main body, or there is a leak where the nozzle seals to the airbrush. Now with the harder Steenbeck, you have a black O-ring under the air cap and you have a white Teflon seal um, underneath the nozzle. So one of those two things can go bad and cause a leak and then give you bubbles in the paint cup. So if you're using a harder Steenbeck and you get bubbles in the paint cup, first thing you wanna do is unchuck the needle, pull the needle back so you don't crash the nozzle into the needle when you tighten it, and then tighten that air cap down. And then reset your needle and see if the bubbles go away. And that was absolutely the cure in my case. I mean, it was amazing. I cleaned the brush. I did everything thinking that there was a blockage somewhere. Right. And there wasn't a blockage. It was, and I, it seemed like the, the, the nose piece was tight, but it clearly just was not quite tight enough. And, you know, what's insidious about this is, you know, uh, guys will develop, uh, you know, air bubbles in the paint cup. They think intuitively, well, clearly there's something blocking flow of air and paint from the paint cup to the nozzle. So it's the nozzle that's clogged. So intuitively, I have to break the brush down and clean it. And when they do, um, you know, oftentimes they don't find a demonstrable clog or, you know, a demonstrable reason that the, the, the brush was clogged. They'll reassemble, reassemble the brush. And when they do, they'll tighten everything just a little bit more. And when they tighten it a little bit more, the bubbles go away and they make the assumption that, ah, there was a clog and I got it out. And yeah. not, that's not necessarily the case. So if, if after, if after you tighten that air cap, you're still getting bubbles in the air cup, uh, in the, in the paint cup, excuse me, then you have to think about, okay, maybe the black rubber O-ring underneath the air cap has gone bad. And if you're shooting lacquers, that black rubber uh, O-ring, any brush that uses a black uh, uh, rubber O-ring underneath the air cap, if that's, if that's exposed to lacquer directly, um, it will break the rubber down and the O-ring will go bad. Now, keep in mind, you can shoot shoot lacquer through harder steamback and other brushes that use rubber O-rings all day long because normally the lacquer doesn't actually see that black rubber, rubber O-ring. It only sees it when lacquer is splashed onto the brush or even worse when the air cap is removed from the, uh, the airbrush and soaked in lacquer thinner with the rubber O-ring on it. And that will for sure kill that O-ring. So... If you look at the O-ring and it looks tattered, you can buy those O-rings. They come three in a bag for like four dollars. Um, it's good to have a, a, a spare set, you know, in your in your kit bag. The other thing place to look again is with a harder Stingbeck brush is the white nylon uh, seal on the bottom of the nozzle, the brass nozzle, which slips into the air cap with a harder Stingbeck. Those white Teflon seals are replaceable. They yeah. pop right off with an Exacto blade. And they pop right back on with your finger. Badgers have the exact same thing too. Yeah, and again, replaceable. So with those with 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 those situations, you know, if tightening the air cap doesn't fix the problem, then the next next step is to, okay. I have to replace either the O ring or the nozzle seals um, in order to fix it. Now, what if you have a brush like an Awada that has the the nozzles that screw into the air cap? In that case, sometimes what you got to do is get your little wrench out and just, you know, put a few more foot pounds of torque onto that nozzle, you know, um, fitting into the uh, into the, the main body there. 
If that doesn't do it, you can also, and this is where beeswax comes into play. And a, a lot of guys have heard, you know, the old tricks of sealing an airbrush up with beeswax. This is one instance where it's probably a handy trick to, to, to have in your, up your sleeve. Um, again, if you're dealing with an Awada or an Awada style brush, like a master, you've got the uh, threaded nozzles. Um, sometimes a little bit of beeswax on those threads before you put the nozzle in um, will, will go a long way to sealing that nozzle to the airbrush and get rid of the uh, you know the bubbles in the paint cup. I so, haven't heard of that trick. That that's interesting. Yeah, you can also use the beeswax. You can use beeswax anywhere um, where you've got you know threads and you want you know you want to seal it. Um, and then, of course, this is in lieu of uh, changing uh, the O-ring out or changing the seal out, because, of course, that's the best thing. You know, it's the best thing is to just fix the brush. Well, I think that's where we were last time you were on. I think we <laughs> talked about beeswax a little bit, and then that's yeah. kind of kind of what you said then. It's, uh, yeah. it's, fix it's it. a uh, fix it, yeah. Fix it and try not to use the beeswax. But sometimes, especially if you're dealing with a brush, again, like in a water where you've got those threaded the threaded nozzles and those those little threads give out with time i'm sure everybody has experienced it you get a little wobble in the nozzle when you start putting it in those threads are, are wearing sometimes beeswax will go a long way to you know getting a couple of more hours out of that nozzle before you finally have to replace it so anyway that's it bubbles in the paint cup it's not necessarily a clog it might simply be that your air cap and or your nozzle are not tight enough. Before we went hot, I asked if this might be brand specific and and you said generally no, but let me no. tell you what uh what prompted that question and and maybe it just gets yeah. back into what you, what you're saying more in a in a at a higher level, but uh on a Badger airbrush, yeah. If you split the little brass nozzle extension, yes, on the nozzle, yes. It'll do this. Yes. So, I was wondering if maybe you know, that's kind of unique to Badger, that little extra. You used to be able to buy them separately. I don't know if you still can, but they're kind of hard to replace. You yeah, can. I don't know. I don't know if you can either. I've not seen them. Um, but you, yes. You you can. You actually can buy them separately, but God, they're microscopic. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're they very they're actually very easy to replace. I've I've managed to split one a long time ago, and it was a very, very simple fix. You know, I just had a Pache, a brand new Pache double action in the shop. Uh, a, uh, a customer brought it to me. Uh, he had bought it all, all, offline and uh, brand new and uh, was having some issues with it, brought it to the shop. And uh, even with it, with this Pache, the issue was the air cap simply was not tight enough. And the amount of foot pounds we had to put on this thing in order to tighten it was a little unreal. But once it was tightened down, the brush worked beautifully. So, um, Pache is another one that you can add to that category. Well, we've covered a lot of them then. That's <laughs> <laughs> about all the major players that you can buy right now. Yeah, oh, really? yep, pretty much, pretty much. So that was, that was the first quick one there, bubbles in the paint cup. Um, the second one I wanted to touch on, um, was something that we discussed briefly, uh, the last time I was on the show, which was the, the use of Liquitex flow aid and slow dry. And as I recall, the it was the 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 question that w- was being answered at the time was what is the difference between Liquitex Flow Aid and Slow Dry? Um, and we discussed you know the differences then. Um, I had been working for a while to get both of those reagents onto model paint solutions, um, and I have finally found a distributor 
um, that can get them to me at a reasonable price so I can put them on the site at a reasonable price. And both the uh, flow aid and the slow dry will be on the site next week. And um, if you go back to even the very first article I wrote for Model Paint Solutions when it was just a wee baby company, and I had not brought any paint brands on board yet. I was simply a, a, a very small, uh, you know, a website focused on measuring tools and harder Steenbeck airbrushes. No paint, paint wasn't even, you know, really in in the on the front burner at that point. Yet when you look at those first articles talking about using Vallejo and Life Color and Model Master acrylics, there it is, right there in black and white, Liquitex Flow Aid, five to ten percent by volume. The reason I bring that up is I've been using these two reagents for about 20 years. And I, I use them in practically every acrylic paint or primer that I use. And they make a world's difference between having an acrylic that shoots in a mannerly, reproducible, reliable way and having one that's just a real bear every time you, you go to use it. It's more trial and error than anything else. So that being the case, um, I just wanted to, to spend a couple of minutes on um, Liquitex Flow Aid and Slow Dry. And to do that, I wanted to, to tell uh, what I'm calling the, uh, the adventure in high altitude airbrushing. It's a, <laughs> a, a parable, if you will. Um, but this, this story really illustrates the utility of the Liquitex products in taming acrylic paints. So in 2019, I was asked by uh, uh, IPMS Denver, Rob Wolf chapter, and the folks at Cole Parr's Hobby Town to fly out to Denver to do a uh, airbrush demonstration there at Cole Parr's. And I want to... Uh, Which, by the way, is one of the great hobby shops in the United States. I happened to be out on a business trip and went to Cole Parr, and boy, was that impressive. Yep, and there's some really nice people. And when I was a wee baby modeler, I, I always remember seeing the Cole Parr's hobby ads in the back of Fine Scale Modeler. Yep. They were one of the first ones to have resin and, you know, aftermarket. I mean, they were always a little ahead. So anyway, I jumped at the chance to go to Cole Parr's. And I also want to uh, give a quick shout out to John Taylor, who uh, uh, was is, is with the Rob Wolf IPMS Denver chapter for helping coordinate and make this whole thing uh, uh, work well. I hope you do well, John. Um, so preparatory to going out there, I put my infinity and uh, a selection of acrylic paints and thinners, as well as two 20 mil bottles, each with Liquitex Flow Aid and Liquitex Slow Dry in my and my luggage flew to the mile high city and sat down at Cole Parr's hobby shop with all my stuff there. And with about, I'd say 25 to 30 guys who had, uh, who had shown up to, you know, see the demonstration. <laughs> and, uh, I mixed up my paint the way I normally do and dialed in my pressure the way I normally do and went to dial in about a one millimeter wide line and got nothing but a spitting, spattering mess. And I just couldn't believe it because I had never seen my mix, my dilution that I'd used for years and years and years behave like that. I just had not seen it before. Um, so anyway, uh, that was, uh, that was a bit of a, uh, of an eye opener. And, uh, and all the guys were kind of chuckling going, huh? Well, 
he's having some issues today. And I was. So uh, I cleaned the brush and got all the, the, the good up paint out of it. And the first thing I noticed is that when I set the air pressure for something that would be comparable to 10 or 12 pounds in sea level Seattle, I was dialed in to about 25 to 30 pounds. And I couldn't believe that because the difference is, you know, huge. That's 10 to 12 pounds more. And I asked all the, uh, you know, the guys there in the, in the store, I said, you know, when you have enough airflow to get, you know, this, this kind of, this kind of uh, spray, what are your gauges showing? And they all, you know, raised their hand when 25, 30 pounds came up. So right there, there's a difference because at sea level Seattle, where I'm now or where I grew up, sea level Florida, I would never dial my compressor up to 30 pounds. But because of, you know, density, altitude and a whole bunch of things that are going to go beyond, you know, this conversation, getting into the physics of comp compressors and, and, and pressure gauges right there. If you're if you're airbrushing at a high altitude, higher altitude than normal, higher above sea level, you're going to have to be running your compressor at a higher PSI than you would at sea level. So that was the first eye opener. Second thing is, in order to get the paint to shoot in a comparable way as it does in, again, sea level Seattle, I had to drop my, my concentration of paint from about 40% paint down to 20% paint. In addition to that, I had to use, of course, more thinner. And, but the, 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 big, the, big, the two main reagents that made the big difference in, in getting this paint to behave, and I was shooting Mission, by the way, at the time. A lot of the guys were using Mission, and that was one of the things they wanted to see demonstrated, so Mission it was. And the, really what made the difference was when I started upping the amounts of Liquitex Flow Aid and Slow Dry in my mix. And it wasn't until I came up with a mix of 20% paint, 20% slow dry, 20% flow aid, and the balance of that thinner that I started getting really nice, tight, one millimeter wide lines with, with not a lot of stipple, you know, above and below the line. Very, very nice. Almost like I, I was almost as good as I could get in Seattle. So the takeaway point there is well before i get to the takeaway point let me just add to that i had experienced something similar to this when my my family and i uh my job took me to omaha nebraska for six years there at the medical university of, of nebraska and um again my wife and i uh having uh, grown up in florida <laughs> when the first nebraska winter hit we turned the uh, the, the the heater up to 11 and we <laughs> and we left it there <laughs> um and we got all nice and toasty and as you can imagine the house got quite warm and quite arid and i went down to or went up because my shop was in the attic even warmer and uh i started working you know on on a kit i remember this was in the middle middle of winter i had you know uh, sprayed uh, uh used an airbrush in six or seven months because you know the job was keeping me busy but anyway, it behaved about like it did that day in Denver. And there the situation wasn't elevation as much as it was lack of humidity. I was trying to airbrush in a dry and arid area with very, very little humidity. And the paint was just dry because acrylic paints dry very fast, as you know. And the only thing that tamed the paint sufficiently 
in the dead winter of Omaha with the heat up to 11 was, again, 10 or 15% of flow aid and slow dry added to the thinner, slowed the, the paint down enough that the tip dry went away, the paint goobers went away, the finish got very nice and smooth, and I was able to do fine line work, um, you know, again, as well as I can do now in, in sea level Seattle, there in the middle of winter in Omaha. But the formulation that it required was entirely different. I do think that that people don't appreciate how much more sensitive acrylics are to pressure and humidity than enamels or lacquers. Exactly. That, That while enamels and lacquers are certainly sensitive somewhat, it's a whole order of magnitude different if you're doing acrylics to be sensitive to both air pressure and humidity. Yes, exactly right. Exactly. Acrylics are super sensitive to arid conditions, to a lack of humidity, to partial pressure at elevation, way more so than enamels and lacquers. And it's interesting that when you trick them into behaving, you know, appropriately, the drying time of of, of acrylics increases. I mean, by the time you get 20% flow, uh, flow aid or 20% slow dry into your mix, that acrylic dry time of 45 minutes to an hour is going to be more like two or three or four hours. So That's a great point. So there's the downside. So if, you know, if you're coming from my generation where you, you, you cut your teeth on enamels, <laughs> you know, which took sometimes days to dry, right? Yeah. The idea of saying, okay, I'm going to shoot color X, and before I go into color Y, I'm going to let it dry overnight, that's not a big deal for us because that's our generation. But if, if let's say you are living in Wyoming, and it is the dead of winter, and you really want to finish that A36, you know, um, whatever, P51, whatever you're doing, um, you're going to want to think probably about adding some flow aid and some slow dry to your mix in order to get that paint to behave more, actually more like an enamel. But, you know, eyes wide open, you're going to be looking at a longer dry time and a longer curing time when you add both of those reagents to the paint. So, um, and that's why I, I just not, not to get too tangentized, but and not to speak ill of social media, gosh, I'd never do that. But um, <laughs> this is one of the reasons that I find it very frustrating to to get on social media and answer questions about airbrushing, because I have lost track of how many social media conversations where you've got guy number one saying that the paint isn't behaving correctly, and guy number two is telling him, oh, you know, you're doing it wrong because you're doing something wrong because when I do it, the way it behaves perfectly. So clearly you're doing something wrong. And guy one is sitting um, on the coast of England, you know, <laughs> you know, in a humid, in a humid, you know, uh, non uh, in a human cool uh, environment. And the guy that he's sparring with, that the paint is behaving differently, is sitting in Tucson, Arizona. And the paint's going to behave entirely differently between those two situations. And, you know, again, not to get on my soapbox, but it it just doesn't seem 
that kind of nuance to be able to explain, okay, it's going to work differently because of X, Y, and Z. Doesn't uh, Social media doesn't always lend itself to that kind of nuance. It's more of a black and white, do it this way kind of a medium. Wait so, a minute. Are you, are you suggesting social media is not nuanced and full of, <laughs> of shades of gray in conversation? No. I mean, we're, we're breaking news here. I think we need I know. to get this out to the public. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting your ratings. You know, I'm doing <laughs> there you go. There yeah. you go. Breaking. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Social media is not nuanced. No, it is not. It is not. It, like I said, I have lost track of watching these conversations. And again, one guy is in, let's say, let's say Denver, and he's having problems doing fine line and he's arguing with a guy in Miami. Really? Yeah. Just, yeah. So anyway, um, something to think about when when, you know, for the, your readers or excuse me, your listeners, when when uh, you're looking at social media and you're looking at some of these conversations, look at where these people are located geographically. And sometimes that can go a long way to explaining what they're dealing with. So um, that said, uh, just give you a quick primer on how to use these two reagents. If you are uh, dealing with tip dry, the, the brush just, you know, um, has a lot of uh, dry paint at that uh, nozzle needle interface. You get the goobers building up, the, the brush is clogging, spitting. Um, if you have that issue, um, if you have a dry pebbly overspray, either when you're shooting primers or paints, you're going to want to think about maybe putting some slow aid and, and uh, um, uh, flow aid and slow dry in there. That'll take care of, the, uh, of that pebbly overspray. If you're shooting painted at an elevated uh, elevation, like in Denver or someplace in the mountains like that, or if you're sitting in Texas in the middle of the summer with no humidity and high heat, or if you're in uh, Omaha, Nebraska in the middle of the winter with a uh, heater to 11 and high heat and no uh, humidity, those are the conditions where you're going to want to say, if I'm going to shoot acrylic paints and I want to make them behave more like an enamel, I'm going to have to think about adding Liquitex Flow Aid and Slow Dry. And the easiest way to do it, um, a lot of guys like to count by drops, and that's fine. And you can add both of those reagents to your paint cup. So you can mix your, your acrylic paint up the way you normally mix it up and have your Flow Aid and your Slow Dry ready to go right next to your brush. And if uh, you're shooting a 2 mil uh, paint cup, like most airbrushes have, Anywhere between two to four drops of each in your paint cup will be will get you uh, to about five to ten percent by volume, which is where you want to be. If you're shooting a five mil paint cup, do your mix the same way. Put it in the cup. Be thinking about adding anywhere between three to six, maybe four to eight drops of Liquitex Flow Aid and Slow Dry to your five mil cup. So that's an easy way of just adding it by drop to the paint cup after you mix your paint. An easier and more reproducible and reliable way to do it is to add it to your acrylic thinner ahead of time. And I usually use one of three recipes, and they're all very straightforward and simple. Five and five, which would be 5% Liquitex Flow Aid and 5%, 5% Slow Dry by volume. I mix that up in a large bulk bottle, and the stuff never goes bad. Have it on my shelf whenever I'm ready to shoot my paint or mix my paint. I pick my bottle of thinner. It's already got the flow aid and slow dry in it. So five and five or 10 and 10, which would be 10% uh, slow dry, 10% flow aid or 20, 20. Again, flow aid and slow dry. Um, 
if you are in one of those situations where it is uh, uh, an arid, uh, hot, possibly an elevated situation, you're going to want to be thinking more about using 10 to 20% of each of those versus if you're in a more uh, a humid, less hot environment, then you're going to be thinking about maybe using 5 to 10% of each one of those. And then lastly, if, um, if you're interested in using um, gloss acrylic or acrylic gloss coats um the slow dryer in particular goes a long way to giving you a very very nice gloss coat and you can use it with any acrylic gloss um and if you think about it you know the longer the paint the, the gloss remains open that is to say wet the longer that gloss has to flow and move the smoother and and shinier it will become so um, adding a little uh, slow dry to your gloss goes a long way to getting that gloss even shinier. Keeping in mind, of course, it, on the back end of that, you're going to have more time invested in both allowing it to dry and allowing it to cure. That's a great tip. I had not at all thought about that, that use of it. I just made a note in my, my bourbon notebook. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the other, the other, another place real quick, another place that you're going to want to think about that is when you do fine line, because as soon as you go to fine line, the ratio of air to paint changes drastically, right? You're putting out a lot more air than paint when you're shooting a fine line than when you're shooting a primer or a clear coat. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that ratio change, um, fine line gives you even more tip dry. So if I'm shooting, I've got, let's say I'm, I'm shooting, um, Vallejo. My normal mix for Vallejo is five and five, five Liquitex, five uh, slow dry. That does most of my work. If I'm going to use Vallejo or Mission or Model Master or some other acrylic and go from general spraying to fine line defined as one millimeter or less in width, then I'll go from a mixture using 5% Liquitex to 10 or 15% Liquitex. And I already have that percent made up in a bulk bottle on my bench. And that is my fine line mix. And upping both of those reagents, you know, uh, flow aid and slow dry by 5%, let's say from 5 to 10, um, makes, gives you a, a, a thinner that, that is going to give you less tip dry, less goobers, and kind of lends itself towards fine line work. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, I want to circle back to something you mentioned about halfway through the conversation that that I don't think people pay enough attention to, which is air pressure settings. Yeah, I know. I know. I know modelers who don't even have an air pressure gauge on their compressor. Right, and I don't think people appreciate the 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 role that air pressure plays in getting a good spray, whether you're doing a, a wider base coat or whether you're doing the fine line stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You know, um, I couldn't agree more. And on my site, um, there's tips and tricks, uh, airbrushing tips and tricks, volume three. And um, it's m- matching the uh, paint dilution, the tip size, and the air pressure to the job at hand. Because those are the three main variables you have, right? Tip size, paint dilution, and air pressure. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more. Air pressure is, is, is critical. And, you know, for general work, 
Um, I'll usually have 12 to 15 pounds dialed in just to just for general work. And for general work, I'm going to be shooting a 0.2 to, you know, a 0.3 millimeter tip. Um, uh, and then for fine line work, I'm going to drop that pressure down to from 12 to 15 to somewhere around 10, 10 to 12. But uh, I, I also use an inline air valve on my, on my brush, and I'll take that 10 or 12 pounds coming in and sometimes drop it down to 6 or 8 pounds, depending on how fine a line I want. Right. Yeah. Um, the opposite side of that spectrum is when you're shooting primers and clear coats there, your nozzle size is going to be going up a little bit to 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.6. There, I'm going to be pushing my pressure up to 15 or 18 PSI. Um, you know, with the slightly larger tip size, larger nozzle, you're going to want a little bit more pressure to, to get fine atomization and not get droplets forming because that's how you ruin, you, you, you ruin your fine finishes. You, you lose your atomization due to in, uh, um, insufficient pressure. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good point. And again, I, I try to bring that out in the volume three of the tips and tricks, trying to correlate those three variables. Pressure is a real big one, though. And that's that's a good point, by the way. He has all of this on his website, and it is definitely worth going and reading all of those things. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. The in particular that that article, if you scroll to the to the bottom, what I tried to do at the bottom of the article is is give you in picture form multiple different um, um, models of different sizes. And then in the corner of each picture, kind of a um, uh, kind of a, a baseball score breakdown, if you will, of tip size, uh, uh, paint dilution, and air pressure. So you can see, oh, for one seventy second scale, he used this size tip, this dilution, and this pressure to do that. But with this one forty eighth, he used this set, and it's going to be different. Well, John, let's get on to our, our our main topic tonight, which is one we've had some requests for and and it's all about your take on decaling you mean decals decals well well that's right whatever geography you're from <laughs> i can I, I will tell you i i the first time i ever heard them referred to as decals was when i was in canada and i was like what are you talking about and then i figured out oh they mean decals you know potato spud what are you gonna do Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, decals, uh, the bane of many modelers existence um, and a hurdle that I think everybody has to clear at some time in their modeling you know, career. If you're going to if you're going to you know, do the work that you want to do, where do you want to start? I guess th there's the, uh, the the perennial debate about gloss coats before or not needed are, are needed or not needed versus a smooth coat of paint versus a not smooth coat of paint mm -hmm. and uh I, i'm just curious what the john miller take is on 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 your process and what what works for you well you know i kind of i've kind of gone the full spectrum there was a time when um i wanted the uber 10 foot deep gloss coat um prior to putting my decals on and i, I did that for years and then i became a, a bit more adept at using um decal solvents and uh, in my, my, my latter years, I've kind of switched from going for a finish that's super glossy 
versus one that is glossy. It's smooth, but more importantly, it's chemically stable. And for me, there was a big difference between the two. You're going to have to explain the difference between smooth and chemically stable for for those of us <laughs> lawyers who don't don't have any of that science background. Well, so for years I was an aqua gloss guy, right? Or future floor wax. And um, uh, and just as an aside for the for the folks out there shooting future future floor wax. Um, I find that if you take the old Model Master acrylic thinner or Vallejo acrylic thinner and you do, you dilute your future floor wax by about 30% with either of those acrylic thinners, both of them have just enough alcohol in them that they break the surface tension of the, of the future and it shoots way, way nicer, way, way easier to get a gloss coat. Okay, I've got to grab my notebook now. That's another that's another great tip because I I shoot future a lot. Yeah, I did too for years, and I you know I and I, I was pretty pleased with the results I was getting with it. But you know, if you've used future, you know that there are some downsides to it. If you use set and saw, and either one of those sit on um, a dried you know coat of future too long, the future turns milky white. And if you're silly enough to try to push down on the decal while it's milky white, well, oh. you know what happens. Yes, that's a bad thing. If you leave it, it goes away. But if yes. you push on the decal, you have a yeah. problem. You have a you're hole. entering a world of pain. <laughs> yes. And it's just not worth going there. So um, so you know, that's what I mean by you know, I, I, going for a gloss uh, uh, coat that is super, super glossy because I could get future you know, pretty shiny, but oh, yeah. it's not the most chemically stable uh, gloss there is. Um, if you're lucky and you're using some you know, really uh, high-quality aftermarket decals that are super, super thin and don't require a lot of microset or microsol, then future is probably going to be fine. If you're doing an Eastern European kit or a kit that's 30 years old and the decals are, you know, so thick you can see the carrier film by by your naked eye, and you know you're going to be using a lot of set and saw in order to get those decals to sit, you know, to, to sit, then maybe a super gloss but slightly fragile coat is not what you want to go for. So um, – I tried multiple gloss coats. The one I'm using right now, and uh, I've talked about it before, is uh, a Mission Clear Primer. And that is basically polyurethane, you know, based paint. And I take their clear primer and I dilute it to 30% um, in Mission Thinner. So I'll do 30% clear primer, 50% Mission Thinner, 10% Liquitex Flow-Aid. And 10% Liquitex slow dry. So it's 30% clear primer, 10 and 10, slow dry and, and, and flow aid, and the balance mission thinner. That is pretty much the only thing I use these days for a clear coat preparatory to decaling. And again, since it's polyurethane based, once it cures, it is very, very, very tenacious. Um, it is not anywhere near as glossy as is the old aqua gloss or, you know, a pure gloss coat. But again, once it's cured, it is very chemically stable. That is to say that you can use set, you can use sol, 
You can let them, you know, sit on the model for a long protracted time and the coat doesn't turn white or milky. It doesn't begin breaking down. It is very chemically inert, very chemically stable. If you back up at it to, you know, one step higher as in level of what we're talking about, so you still, you, you still put a clear coat on before your decals. I most certainly always do. I always put a clear coat on before I decal, um, almost always. And, uh, again, um, for me, since I know I'm going to be using set and saw, I want to be sure that I use a, a clear coat that is going to be chemically stable and not break down with a set and saw. And for me, I've got, I've had very good luck with mission clear primer, you know, in their thinner. Um, I've also used most, most recently used the, I just wanted to, you know, experiment with it and see how it handles. I gave the AK gloss, um, diluted in their nitro thinner a try. Um, and that stuff works absolutely beautiful. So that's, that's another option for you. I uh, use both set and saw on that gloss and it was very, very stable. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, is if you're going to use set and saw, you don't have to necessarily worry about getting a, a super, super gloss coat. You can make do with a semi matte. You can make do with a semi gloss. That's, that's perfectly fine. If you're going to be using decal solvents. I guess my question would be that there's a, a convention among pretty large swath of the hobby right now that says this gloss coat before decals is not really even necessary if your base coat is sufficiently smooth to begin with. Yes, I would agree with that. And that's that's, that. that's irrespective of, of flat versus gloss finishes. Um, I would agree with that too, if it's smooth enough. For instance... Um, Sometimes if I'm if I'm shooting mission acrylic, I will dilute. I almost always dilute my dilute my mission acrylic in CP30. And once that again, once that CP30 is cured for one to two days, um, you can go right on top of that with decal solvents with no problem. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So again, for me, it's chemical stability, and you know that's that makes the difference because again, um, I've tried Solvaset. Uh, you know, I've prob probably probably tried most of the same decal solvents that you've tried. Um, the two that work best are, you know, the old the old standards of Microset and Microsol, and I've been I've been using those for God twenty years, but I, solely um, for about the last five years, I've just so focused on Set and Sol, and and uh, they work really well as long as you have a stable, chemically inert, you know, uh, finish to work on. So for me. Um, you, let's go ahead and get to the decaling. So for me, I do use a clear coat. If, if the finish isn't sufficiently smooth, I will clear coat it. If the sufficient is sufficient, if the finish is smooth enough without a clear coat, I'll go without it. Um, the first thing I do when I'm putting my decals on is there really is a difference between using wet, excuse me, using cold water and hot water. And decals usually behave way better with nice warm water not cold water. So first thing I'll do is I'll get my coffee mug, put it on my, my little warmer there, get some warm water in there. Um, I will prep the area with micro set and I use a micro brush and I'll put just enough micro set there to wet the area. I'll take the decal off the film or off the carrier paper. I will ever so carefully touch it to a chem wipe to remove as much of the water from the decal as I can. And then I will place it on top of the micro set. Maybe put a little bit more micro set around the decal so it's nice and blended in. 
and then I let that sit under a white light so it's got some, some heat on it. But I'll let that sit for anywhere between five to ten minutes until the microset begins to evaporate off. And then I'll put another round of micro set on, go do something else while this is well this while I'm decaling, of course, and all all the while keeping an eye on that decal. Again, 5, 10, 15 minutes later, most of that set has evaporated off. I'll put more set on. I'll probably do five or six rounds of micro set until I begin to see the decal start to 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 set into the finish as the micro set dries. But here's the important we're reaching the important the inflection point if you will in using set and solve. And that is once the decal starts to set down onto the finish and you start seeing the underlying de detail coming up coming up, you know, through the decal. So you know the decal's getting softer and it's starting to sit down. There comes that point where you're going to want to let the decal get dry enough so that you can switch to micro saw. If you go too early and you hit it with micro saw too early, the decal will, will wrinkle up real, real badly. And sometimes those wrinkles don't go away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that for years. I never could figure out what my problem was. Why, why would, would, you know, why would those wrinkles go away on some decals and not others? And by trial and error, what I learned was spend more time in the using the micro set phase. In fact, there are some decals that will uh, respond just to set, and you never have to even go to solve. And whatever you do, if you see a decal wrinkling, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Let it go. Yeah. Let it dry. Another thing you can do is is uh, you you're you're about to start your decaling. You take that decal sheet, find a decal you're not going to use for the particular scheme that you're doing, and go to your paint mule or go to your sheet of styrene, which has been primed and painted at the same time that the model has. And I always do that. I, I'm I'm doing the Arma Hobby P51B Razorback right now. Impressive and, kit. Oh, it's a gorgeous kit. And I've got a little sheet of styrene that um, has received every paint treatment that the Mustang has from cleaning through primer to, you know, various uh, layers of paint. That is my my real time paint mule, I call it. So now when it comes time to put my decals on, if I'm worried about how the finish on my model is going to react to my decal solvents, I can now test it on my mule before I test it on my model. And as long as your mule is painted at the exact same time that your model is with the exact same paints, it'll behave the same way. So I'll take my mule, I'll take a decal that I'm not going to be using off the sheet, and then I'll sit down with my various solvents and figure out, is this decal one that is just going to be responsive to just set? Which many of them are. They'll go right down with just set and no solve is required. Or... Is this one of the decals that will have to require both set and saw? And I'll figure that out before I actually go to start decaling the model. Back to the water temperature thing. I, for me, in my experience, I, I got most of my decaling experience not on the military models I built, but I was decorating rail cars by the scores for a number of years. And in fact, I've got a whole clinic I put together for the local NMRA chapter here I'd put on years ago and talk about a lot of this stuff. But uh, I, I think that for me, for my, for my experience, and you can maybe 
talk about some other advantages if there are any. Um, but the warm water, I think the the big thing is it reacts with the kind of the cornstarch based adhesive uh, on these decals faster than a, than than cold water. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's kind of the same mechanism. It gets most of it gone away because I I really don't like any of that stuff around. Because that's the glue they give me is not what's attaching that to my model. No, it's the intimate contact and the the disillusion of the the film into the paint finish. Exactly. That's your your bond, and and not this glue they've given you to stick it on there with. So, because I think I think that stuff sometimes it can stain and create some goofy kind of a. Uh, sheen differences when that stuff floats all over the place. And, and I, I really, I, I like most of that decal adhesive that's inherent to the, the, the carrier film and the backing yeah. sheet to, to go away completely. So I'm sure you've seen an old decal sheet. I've done this before. I'm building an old kit and you put the decal in, in water and you can see that the adhesive turn milky white underneath the decal. Yes. Yep. And, you know, that, that decal is, is by no means ruined because with a little bit of care and some patience and some Q-tips and, you know, a, a gentle touch, you can scrape that adhesive off the back of the decal with a Q-tip and then put it right back on the model and get a perfectly fine decal out of it. As long as you get that adhesive out of the way. John, you mentioned micro, you're, you're, you're a man after my own heart. Microsol and Microset are probably... Yeah my two go-to setting solutions. Yeah. I got one more, but yeah. However, being the guy I am, I have everything from (laughs) the Mr. Mr. Color line, the Mr. Hobby setters to the Tamiya setters to the Deco product setters to solve a set. Yep. What, Other than Microsol and Microset, what else do you resort to and when do you resort to it? AK decal adapter. Oh, we're going to have to get some AK decal money. We are AK money. Yeah, they're going to have to they're going to have to 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 pony up on this. So, yeah. AK AK decal adapter. So that's 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 what I'm down to is is as like you I'm a I I went the solve a set route I tried that it seems like everybody and his brother has has a uh, has a decal solvent out and I'm like you I have a shelf full of them and I've tried all of them but I've settled on micro set and saw um, and real quick if we could get back to the set and the saw once you back to the that the the uh, example I was talking about once you switch from set to saw that's when you start to see that carrier film dissolve it is at the saw stage yeah and it, yeah and that's what I'm always going for I'm I'm going for you know that point where when you're done and you you rotate the model under light you can basically only see the decal and the carrier film is just gone that's that's what I'm looking for. Now, uh, with regards to how much time, and this is something else that I've discussed with you know modeling friends here in Seattle, I put a, 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 a huge amount of time into decaling. I'm not a very fast decaler at all. Um, when I, by the time I go four or five rounds of micro set, and then let the decal dry down so I can switch into micro saw and dissolve the carrier film. That'll probably go for another three or four rounds of saw. 
I'm usually into decaling at least three to four hours per session. It's, it is the most time consuming aspect of modeling for me is decaling. That raises an issue that, that, and I'm the same way decaling takes long. Do you decal only horizontal to the plane of gravity? Horizontal to the plane of gravity. Um, in, yes. in other, in other words, the model has to be like if I'm putting the yes. decals on the top wings. Yes, the plane is sitting up with the, th- and then when I'm going to put them on the side of the fuselage, yes. I rotate the airplane ninety degrees to put the decals on one side. Yeah, I should have, you know, I should have mentioned that because a big a big part of my decaling rig are various jigs yes. that I, I have built for this very reason so that, especially I do a lot of aircraft, so I'm doing a lot of the sides of fuselages. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I, so the, you know, so gravity is 90 degrees to the, to the plane that the, the decal is on. I always, I always, cause if not, of course, you know, you, you run into a situation where the bottom quote of the decal gets more solvent than the top of the decal. Exactly. Yeah. So I've I've got four or five jigs that I use to uh, to always maintain you know the decal in a straight up if you will orientation. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. That's um that's an important point. That and again, I don't I don't even start decaling unless I have three to four hours of uninterrupted time that I can devote to it. Um, I, I I have that same problem. That yep. decaling is not something that I can do thirty minutes at a time. Nope. So if, if I go through set, I go through Saul, I come back the next day and there's an, there's an area not sitting down or there's a, you know, a little bit of uh, bubbles or whatever the problem is. That's when I will switch to the AK decal adapter. And you guys remember aliens, right? The movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember the alien blood? Yeah. It's acid. It burns through through everything. That's what's in AK decal adapter. Okay, now I have to make a note. I now have to get some AK decal adapter. That stuff is horrendously strong. So you, you, I use it by, I take a small brush and I'll paint it on the decal where the problem is. And I'll have a moist Q-tip waiting to go to take it off. I mean, stronger than Solvacet because that was always the, the reputation. In my reputation, this is stronger than Solvacet. I'm telling you, it's like alien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first time I used it, I went right through the paint, right through my clear coat, right through the paint, because I left it on too long thinking, oh, it's like a solvent, right? No, no. So you put it on and you take it off. But wow. this stuff will make a decal, just like it says, adapt to whatever the underlying surface is. I'm gonna have to try some of that stuff. I'm looking. I'm looking at my bottle right here. I was just using it a couple of days ago. Um, and then I wanted to actually cycle back to something that you said earlier, and that is micro setter and micro softer. Yeah, setter and soften. Mister Mark Setter and Mister Mark Softer. So I spent years um, cussing out the decal designers at Tamaya. Years. Yeah, because yeah, because it, I was I was told, and it was it was common knowledge. I thought that Tamiya decals just weren't usable. That's why God created the aftermarket decals, right? Right. They're too thick. They're they're super glossy. They're too thick. 
They yep. don't stick all of those ja- quote unquote Japanese decal problems. Yep. And now I'm going to give a shout out, shout out to a Mr. John Chalinski, who is a friend of mine here in Seattle, a master modeler. And I was complaining to him about this one day. And he looked at me and said, well, you need to use Mr. Softer and Mr. Setter. And I went, say what? <laughs> and he said, oh, you, 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 you come with me, newbie. And we were at um, Skyway Hobbies at the time. And he walked right over to the shelf. He grabbed two bottles. He says, you got to use these. And I was working on it to my kid at the time. I went home that very day. I used Setter and Softer just like you would use Set and Saw. And I put the Mr. Softer, Mark Softer, where the decal would be. I put the decal down. I couldn't believe how all of a sudden, boom, this thick, you know, carrier, Tamiya carrier film just started kind of dissolving away. The decal just started melting onto the plastic. I couldn't believe my eyes. And I waited, you know, 30, 45 minutes. I switched to to Mr. Mark Softer and, um, uh, it just dissolved away just like it would if it, as though it was uh, it was a microset and microsol. So for Tamaya decals, um, Mr. Mark Setter and Mr. Mark Softer work amazingly well. Yeah, yep. and they're the only two that work on Tamaya decals. I sat here at my bench one day for an hour just playing with uh, Tamaya decals and various solvents, and I can't explain it, but the Tamaya decals work preferentially and quite well with those two reagents. Which is either uh, a, a, a sinister Japanese plot or there's some <laughs> chemical explanation for it that we don't particularly understand. Yeah. And, you know, the, they, they look wildly different than uh, Microset and Microsol. I'm looking at micro, uh, Mr. Setter right now, and it has a white powder-like precipitant in the bottom of the bottle yep. and that's how it is brand new yep. and the the, um, uh, the softer mr mark softer is 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 completely clear but the the setter is nowhere near like the uh, micro set is so anyway yeah clearly the chemistries are wildly different but if you are committed to using those tamaya decals these two reagents really will give you phenomenal results and you use them about the same way as set and salt i've heard exactly that same thing yep so um so now cycling back to uh our decals so now if we've gone through um microsol um and we had some issues and i used you know the ak decal adapter alien blood and i have it stuck down on there (laughs) i'm 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 firm believer in um uh, shooting a clear coat over the decals prior yep. to starting my weathering step. Um, and the reason I do that is two reasons. Number one, you can kind of blend in that little ridge that sometimes yep. is left where the, you know, the decal, you know, is proud above the surface of the model. The other reason though, is I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm very fond of enamel panel liners. And um, you, you do have to be uh, worried that uh, there are some types of decals that are affected by enamel panel liners. Agreed. That's one more reason to cover your decals before you go to your enamel panel liner. Um, but just just to digress briefly, um, and I'm going to give another shout out now to uh, Eric Christensen, who's uh, president of IPMS Seattle. He gives a great talk on um, the use of clear coats um, after decaling but preparatory to weathering. 
And his thing is uh, keeping the texture of that finish coat in mind that you want in order to do the weathering, you know, that, you, that you're aiming for. So uh, I used to shoot gloss before I did my decal, put my decal down, sealed it with gloss, and then I go into my weathering steps. But then I started doing armor. And for the weathering step, I wanted to go into pastels or I wanted to work with weathering pigments. Well, you guys know these things don't work at all on gloss coats. Gloss. Right. And I spent way too many evenings trying to get these things to smear on a gloss coat until I was, again, that's what's so great about IPMS, you know, membership. I'm sitting in this meeting and here's, here's the prez giving his presentation. And he just says, and you switch to a matte gloss coat. So you've got the friction for your pigments. It's like, yep. God, that's so simple. Well, and the same thing goes, I, I've become enamored with the AK watercolor pencils and yeah. the exact same thing applies. If yes. you do them over a gloss coat, they don't work just yes. simply because there's no tooth. Yes. Whereas if you're working over a mat or a semi mat, that is where you get enough tooth for for the weathering, the watercolor pencils to work. Exactly. Exactly right. And and it's funny you bring those up because I too have, have, have uh, kind of fallen in love with those AK weathering pencils. They are awesome. Yes, and they are. They, they do need, uh, you know, some friction, you know, with the substrate in order to that you're you're using them on in order for them to work well. So, back to the decaling. Um, now, when I I'm ready to see my seal my decal, I'll think ahead and, uh, to the scheme that I'm aiming for, and if it's a scheme that's going to incorporate a fair amount of weathering, well, then I'll go from that gloss to maybe a semi matte or a matte. Um, in order to see my decals in and at the same time prep for the next weathering step, a, a two for one. And that's about it for me for decals. I was going to ask if there was anything you did, because there's, again, this, this harkens back to my, my rail car finishing days. And it, it's, it's less so now with the military kits, I think. But in that world, you had two types of decals. You had decals that had spot printed clear film on them. And what I mean by that is there was a a patch of, of carrier film that was roughly the same shape of the decal image, but it didn't cover the entire sheet. And then you had a, a sheet that was printed over an entire piece of clear film. Yep. You know, ed- edge to edge. Yep. And things I learned when working with those two different things was particularly the ones that were a solid sheet of carrier film was uh if you didn't want the edges of those decals to show, you had to be real careful and deliberate about how you cut them out of the sheet. So if I could, if I could jump in there, when yep. I, I was just doing those a model or two back, uh, you know, one big giant continuous piece of carrier film. And I was reminded of, cause I hadn't done uh, use those decals like that in a long time. And you know, as you probably know, the trick there is not to cut all the way through the paper. Right. That is, so I go to like a super sharp, uh, surgical scalpel. Yes. I'll, I'll just score it. Just enough to break the carrier film. Just enough. I mean, not even go halfway through the paper, just score the carrier film ever so gently. Yep. Yeah. I think that techniques highlighted in one of Paul Budzik's videos as well. Um, uh, another thing uh, I think some people don't realize if you're using scissors to cut those out. Yeah. Uh, most scissors are set up for right-handed people. 
Yep. And if you're left-handed and you use a pair of right-handed scissors in your left hand and you cut decals out of a sheet like that, the blade that's coming down versus the one that's coming up is the opposite. Yes. Then it would be. And you end up you end up you end up putting a curl in the upward direction if you're using the scissors in the wrong hand. Oh. And it's very nuanced little tricks, but if you really want that film to go away completely, you, you, you got to be mindful, I think, of all the little things, like how you cut it out of the film and how what kind of surface you apply it over and what solvents you use. And, and one more thing, again, from those days is, I, I'll be curious to your opinion on this one, because uh, you, you mentioned a little bit but based, based on you know what your next weathering step might be, what, color, what kind of finish you put over the decals. But I, I found some decals have a glossy finish to them, naturally. Mm-hmm. And some brands, not so much anymore, but a lot of the older brands uh, sometimes had a matte finish to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you applied a, a matte finish decal over a semi-gloss paint, set it all down with whatever you're using, and then went straight to a flat finish over that, the, the, the paint and the decal were never going to match. No. You had to unify that with a gloss or semi-gloss finish. That, that's my experience. No, no, make- you're right. You're right. That's, that that's, work. that's a really good point. So, so if, if after I'm done decaling and it, that's, that's a, that's an awesome point. If after I'm done decaling and there is a large contrast between the finish of the model and the finish of the, uh, of the decal. Um, yeah, that's, that's one instance there where you're going to want to, you know, pick your clear coat, click your, pick your clear coat in order to, uh, uh, affect that, that, that differential as much as you can. Cause you don't want those, those decals to be 10 times shinier than the background, even if there isn't any, any carrier film there. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one last, one last little tidbit and it's, it's, I'm kind of hesitant to bring it up because we talked about using set and saw, but we didn't talk about pressing the decal down onto the surface. Mm-hmm. And it's not anything that I do very often. And I'll tell you, if if I have moved to the saw stage, I hardly ever push a decal down on the surface because if you've gone to the saw stage, to push it down at that point, you're kind of inviting disaster, at least in my hands. Wrinkles. Yes, wrinkles. But if you're still at the set stage, and for some reason the decal just isn't coming, you know, going down the way you want it to, I have found that a chem wipe and keep in mind chem wipes are lint free so you're not going to be putting any lint into the um the decal but i'll take a chem wipe and i'll fold it into a you know like a little you know, one inch square piece of paper and i'll moisten that with a little bit of water and i will use that to press the decals down into place only during the set stage of the decaling process and for some recalcitrant decals a little pressure with a chem wipe goes a long way to setting them in place all decals are eventually recalcitrant at some point (laughs) it's true it's so true um and you know i try not to touch them you know as as we discuss but every once in a while um that that trick will will give good results and not end up ruining the decal but again only during the set stage not the salt stage well, this has all been great, and I'm sure we'll get some uh, listener feedback from this one because everybody's got their own voodoo magic they use on decals. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, can't wait. <laughs>
I think so. And I think this this is kind of a precursor to uh, this clear coat discussion we want to have in the future. So uh, yeah, let's yeah. take clear coats on. That's 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 one that I get a lot of emails about. Everything from glosses to semis to mats to flats. And then we have to have a whole nother discussion about stencils rather than decals, but that's for a future episode. Love stencils. <laughs> yep. Count me in. You All got right. it. Well, we're going to, because uh, I think we're going to be try, try to be a little bit more regular, a little, a little bit more deliberate about this going forward. So uh, that sounds good, guys. Keep All me right. in the loop and I'll be here. All you right. got well, it. Well, John, thanks again for joining us at Plastic Model Mojo and giving us your uh, insight and wisdom and experiences into uh, these various processes. And uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, guys. You have a good one. You too. All right, Thank you. Bye. Well, Dave, Dr. Stranger Rush always has something interesting to say and uh, always something to learn. I, I learned a lot from that that session with, with John. Every time I interact with him, I learn something. And you know what? You can't ask for more in modeling than that. So, you know, I, I was really pleased. So I've got some notes made and uh, I can't wait to try some of this stuff out. Well, it's kind of a, we mentioned it in that segment, but uh, we're going to try a little more formal with John and uh, have him on a little more regular. And, uh, you know, if there's topics folks want to hear, I know we're going to talk about clear coats sometime soon and yep. uh, we'll see where it goes after that. But if you got it, if somebody's got an idea of something they want to hear about, send it to either John or us and we'll, we'll make sure that can happen. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dave, we've kind of got a little different episode uh, this time because uh, we knew the interview with John would go kind of long. And uh, the other thing is, in years past, we've done a little contemplating on our modeling year as it unfolds in front of us. And some of the other podcasts have done it. And I think we ought to do it too, but maybe not like we did it last year. You know, we've all got hopes and aspirations for for this this new modeling season. And uh, I don't know. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, You got it. What do you hope to get out of 2022 for your own modeling? Several things. One, complete some projects. After a really good 2020, 2021 was kind of embarrassing, but I have a lot of models that are really, really close to being finished. And all of those need to be finished probably in the first quarter of 2022. If I can do that, then that sets me up to complete some or to do some other projects that I've wanted to do. I've been thinking a lot about what I'm interested in and why I'm not modeling in the areas I'm interested in. Uh, Part of it is that waiting till I get better stuff, which is stupid. So I hope to, after I get everything cleared off the the bench in the first quarter 2022 i hope to complete a shelf queen one of the one of the ones sitting on the shelf i hope to finish a japanese world war ii start and finish japanese world war ii aircraft because that's one of my major areas of interest and hope to i want to do another airfix mig 17 uh, start to do one that's not just out of the box, but start improving it and figuring out, okay, this is the best MiG-17 kit we've got. It's not perfect. 
what can I do to make it better? And that's going to be incremental. It's not all going to come in one, one build. So I really want to do all of those things. But I also want to let, I, I don't want to restrict myself. So if something strikes my fancy, I want to try that too. Uh, I, I do want to work uh, these AK uh, weathering pencils really interest me. And I think they're really, really useful. So that's something that I'm going to concentrate on. I am also going to, to get this M30 done, I am going to work on chipping and sponge chipping and uh, paintbrush chipping. So if I, could, if I end up at the end of this, uh, at the end of this year with five or six completed models, I'm going to consider it a successful year. How about you? Oh man, I think uh, yeah, productivity is at the top of the list. I, I got to get some stuff done. So uh, again, I'm with you. I I didn't finish a lot in 2020, but going back I, and looking, the the little nostalgia build from Airfix was finished in 2020, not 2021. Yep. So I'm pretty much a goose this year. Last year. Last year. In the, in the last year, right? Um, unless you ca- unless you count those things that you did for the ZIS as independent little modeling projects, which I think they count that way. And I do think if you're working on a larger project, really in one of the ways to avoid getting bogged down and to get depressed by the fact that you haven't advanced the the model as much as you want is to look back on those as successes, as little modeling projects unto themselves, because what you did with those uh, shells and ammo crates really did advance your techniques and your skills. So I, I don't think you can be too hard on yourself for that. I think you're right, but I, I'm not going to count them as finished projects, but I, I did... I did learn a lot this past year and hope to continue that. So uh, like you, I've got a lot that are close. The gun I should, should finish this year. The E16 I should finish this year. Yep. And that's the two. And I I know I'm going to have to finish that Musaru cup thing by March. Right. Second week of March. So that might be the first one I get done this year. Yeah. And then just outside of the, the projects that are on my bench right now, I just, I just would like to be, to move the needle a little bit on being more prolific because yes. I get tired of talking about the same project every other week. And I'm sure our listeners are getting tired of me talking about the no. same projects every other week. No, they uh, love it. There's more to do. There's more I want to do. So I, I, I got to figure all that out. That's that's one of the things that I've got to figure out in that regard. And maybe you do too, is time management. Cause I really do think that a big part of this whole issue is time management. I don't, I don't manage my time well. And I think if, if I understand you correctly, you mean that as a kind of a, a global under the roof house, the roof of your house kind of time management yes, thing. Not absolutely. just, the, not, not just your hobby time. Not it, it. I mean it with the hobby time, but I mean it, I mean it more generally as well. That yes, there too much. I mean, Okay, not to get got, not to get maudlin, not to get all of this. I'm 60 years old. 
I hope that I still have a lot left to me, but the one thing you can't buy more of is time. And all the time you spend staring at stuff, be it TV or whatever, and not being productive, you can't ever get that back. And so I'm trying to dedicate 2022 in part to... to better time management. And, you know, there's projects I want to start. I don't, I don't, I'm not even going to commit to wanting to learn any particular skill. I don't think, because I think that'll come with these projects I've got planned. Sure. Uh, I, I just got to get to them. I don't know, man. We just got to get more stuff done for us yes, and everybody we listening. Yep. <laughs> that's Hey, listen, that's why we started this podcast in the first place. To accountability, get some stuff I, done. Well, we've talked about shows a little bit. What do you got? Uh, what are you, you thinking for hobby travel this year? You and I need to figure this out. I've been kind of bugging you a little bit about this. We need to nail this down. I know we're going to go to Indy. I know we're going to go to the Nationals. We need to A, nail those down, and then B, we need to figure out what else we're going to do. I know we're going to go to the, uh, uh, at least assuming that that life doesn't intervene, the local Louisville show in September. And I so think that, we have our eyes on that Knoxville show too. Yes. So that's at least four. Okay. Indy, Nationals, Louisville, Knoxville. And Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, because we, we always get to Cincinnati because it's yeah. basically halfway between you and me. Uh, <laughs> so that's five. If we do those five, that's great. I would love to see if we can wedge Heritage Con in, assuming that they actually hold it. Um, the big problem, of course, for you and my, for you and me, is that it's on a Sunday, uh, which is less than ideal. I'd love to get in other contests, but I don't know where we're going to fit them. I mean, at some point, my my lovely long suffering spouse is going to object. At some point, and 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 <laughs> rightly so. I mean, if I disappear every weekend or every other weekend to a modeling contest, you know, four or five hours away, she has a a complaint that that's that's valid. So we kind of have to pick our choose pick and choose our targets, but we also need to nail these down. So hopefully, we're going to get them nailed down. That's right. Well, I think two of them are. I think Nats is, is a done deal. And it was a lot of water going under the bridge. But I, I have full intent to go to that one. And Indy's a pretty easy one as well. So Yes, uh, absolutely. So, folks, we're going to be out there, out and about. So we hope to see you. Yes, absolutely. When you When you go into a vendor's room and you see our table, please, if you see us, come talk to us, say hi, interact with us. If you've got suggestions for episodes, We'd love to hear that because really whatever you're telling us you want to talk about is what we'd like to talk about. And now our final bullet on this little discussion, Dave, is uh, just new products or whatever. It could could be kits, decals for you, maybe. I'm interested in getting a a, uh, silhouette cutter. Um, You haven't bought that yet? No, I have not bought that yet. 
You know, they're the th- feeding my children comes first. I don't know why. I mean, for some reason, my wife has upset an obsession with my children being fed and our pets being fed. I think it's silly, but you know, hey, I got to defer at some point. I guess um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go back and listen to episode 55 again. See what you said about something about 24 hours. There you go. <laughs> but also. It is amazing the number of amazing new kits that have already been announced for 2022. Uh, the Focke Wolf 190D series by IGB, the Arma P51BCs, which apparently the first run of them have already sold out, the KI-21 Sallies that are coming out from Special Hobby and Oh, God, I forget who else is doing them. It's uh, Sylvester IBG somebody. But in any event, there's a lot of great stuff already announced, and it's freaking the third week of January. I know one you you didn't mention, I bet bet you end up with. What? Clear Prop and their Sukhoi 25. Oh, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. No question. Hopefully, we don't don't see those in combat sometime in the next week or two. So, we're, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed in that. But, yes, that will definitely be a, a, a must-buy. I, you know, I, I, I've got a ton of models. I've mentioned in the last uh, few episodes walking into the hobby shop. And walking out without buying anything because, at least in part, I say to myself, well, you've got all this stuff you still need to build. There's a lot of stuff that's already been announced that I know I'm going to buy. I cannot imagine what 2022 is going to look like at the end of the year. You? Well, I hope there's a couple more paint lines. Okay, the one thing, <laughs> the one thing we do not need is another couple of paint lines. Okay, <laughs> stop it, everybody, stop it. What's the over under on that? <laughs> oh, I I guarantee you there will be at least two new paint lines announced in the next six months. I'll put money down on it right now. <laughs> oh, for for products, I, I don't. Gosh, I don't know, Dave. I, you've got a darn lab where you have a lot of access to a lot of tools. Those those gas mask hoses for the Russian gas masks, those things are amazing. And I expect that that's not the last thing we're going to see from you on on those projects. No, it's not. I mean, that's... I'm I'm pleased with the way that came out, but I, I it it really did come out nice. I was amazed at how good they looked. I've griped in years past about no BT five from uh from Hobby Boss, and and now oh I can't remember his name, but he runs Hellcat Models has been doing CAD work to do a 3D printed upper hull for the Hobby Boss BT two to make a BT five. <laughs> so I'll, I'll probably just get that instead of waiting for Hobby Boss to get it wrong. Sure. And you know that that the the three d the three d print revolution, I really think that you know I've been amazed in the past at some of the stuff that we're seeing in injection molding that I never thought I would see, 
And I do think that 3D printing is probably going to blow that out of the water. And you're going to see stuff that, that just will amaze you in 3D printing that you never thought you would ever see as a model. And in generally, I'm kind of curious about where many arts going with these Sturmgeschütz kits and their T34 kits and, and all that. And uh, I don't know. It's all exciting, man. It's the golden age still with no end in sight. It is truly, truly, absolutely. Unlike this episode, which we need to have an end in sight. And I think we're getting pretty close to it, Dave. So how was your Narragansett? It was refreshing. That That's what you want from a beer, especially a a, a lighter type beer. Again, like I said, I associate those with uh, spring and summer working outside, but that's what you want from one of those type of beers. Refreshing. And your bourbon, sir? Um, you know what? Evan Williams helps cure COVID, particularly mixed with ginger ale and an ice ball. So, folks, if you're out there and you get COVID, drink some bourbon. Anytime you get any sort of medical condition, take a bourbon and call me in the morning. It's at least a uh, symptom uh, suppressor for sure. Exactly. Which, which is, which is kind of the same thing. Well, my beer's gone, Dave. Good. Glad to hear it. So you got a shout out. I do have some shout outs. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank all the recent additions to the, uh, the ranks of the contributing this episode, we've got Mr. Mike Bird, Hector Cologne, John Bryan, and Branson Smith. They've all contributed to Plastic Model Mojo through one of our two avenues to do that. Uh, those avenues being uh, Patreon. If you want to make a recurring contribution of any amount, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Plastic Model Mojo. Or just go to patreon.com and search for Plastic Model Mojo in their uh, integrated search function there. And it'll let you set up a recurring contribution. Uh, if you'd like to do a one and done or manage your own kind of recurring thing, you can go to uh, plasticmodelmojo.com and there's a heart icon in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, which will take you to our PayPal link, which will let you make a one-time donation. You can go back and visit as many times as you want or just once. Anything's appreciated. And uh, folks, it's totally humbling. I, I can't believe it really that uh, so many people thank so much of us that they're willing to willing to talk with their wallets and thank us with their wallets. And it's really, it's really greasing the skids for us to bring you another great season of plastic model mojo. So thank you. Thank you very much. And I'd like to add my thanks as well. Uh, again, uh, uh, I am like Mike humbled by the fact that anybody thinks that this is listening to Mike and I talk about modeling uh, is something that they want to support. I'm thrilled with it, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And if you haven't, by the way, email plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com. If you're one of the contributors, either through PayPal or through Patreon, and you haven't emailed us to give us your uh, information, your mailing address, your your um your information. Again, we don't sell it. We're not giving it to anybody, but we'd like it personally, just simply so that we can express our appreciation to you because you all are really doing 
something fantastic for us that we never expected. So thank you very much. I'd also like to make a shout out this, uh, this episode to the members 72nd scale aircraft forum. Uh, if you're not on it, go and look at it. If you build 72nd scale aircraft, join. Um, I help moderate it. It is a really great board for seeing and sharing information regarding 72nd scale modeling. I, I appreciate everybody who's joined recently and everybody who's contributed recently. So if you are interested in 72nd scale aircraft, go to Google 72nd scale aircraft forum.com. You'll find us. Please join. I'll get you approved. I'll get you in and you can start posting. And I've got one more. Okay, go for it. Uh, Jared Nuss from IPMS Tidewater in Williamsburg, Virginia, sent us a little gift. Oh, Lord. So uh, I appreciate that, Jared, and I'm sure Dave will too once I get him his, and we'll do that hopefully this week. So Friday. Uh, Friday. So, Jared, thanks a lot, man. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Well, Mike, uh, I, th- I think we're at the end here. I think so, man. It's been an interesting ride with Dr. Miller and then uh, all the listener mail. Fun times. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I hope folks enjoy this one. And uh, hopefully uh, the next one will be just as good. So, uh, you know, we're at the end here. And Mike, as they say, so many kits. So little time, Dave. Take it easy and finish getting better, my friend. You, you, you bet. I think I'm on the upside. You take care. All right. All right.